Tom Bonnie Glazer, Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing recent tensions along the China-India border and what they signify about China's evolving foreign policy. Friction between China and many of its neighbors is rising, especially over territorial and maritime disputes. China has pursued its interests more assertively in recent months against Taiwan, Malaysia, Vietnam, and Japan, to name a few. And along the Sino-Indian border, the first deadly clash in decades took place in mid-June in the remote Galwan Valley, with 20 Indian casualties and an unknown number of Chinese soldiers killed. How should we understand Chinese policy at this juncture regarding border disputes? One factor is that Xi Jinping has placed great emphasis on defending Chinese sovereignty. Another may be that Beijing worries that other countries may try to exploit the pandemic and growing international pressure on China, and is therefore acting preemptively to demonstrate resolve. And a third possible explanation is that China is trying to seize the opportunity to change the status quo in these disputes in its favor. To discuss the dynamics behind the recent Sino-Indian border clash and China's broader approach to disputes over sovereignty, I'm joined by Dr. M. Taylor Fravel. Dr. Fravel is the Arthur and Ruth Sloan Professor of Political Science and Director of the MIT Security Studies Program. His latest book is Active Defense, China's Military Strategy Since 1949. Taylor, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Bonnie. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. So let's start by talking about the recent round of tensions along the Sino-Indian border. What was the trigger? And both sides have charged that the other was trying to change the status quo. What's your assessment? Sure. Let me start with one minute of background just to remind your readers about the geography we're talking about. So China and India contest the entire front of their border. It's divided into three sectors, the eastern sector or the state of Arunachal Pradesh, which is about 90,000 square kilometers in size and currently under Indian control, a very small uh, central or middle sector. And then finally, the western sector, which is about 33,000 square kilometers in size and more or less under uh, Chinese control. And so the border tensions that we've seen more recently, right, are occurring in the Western sector. And my assessment is that on the one hand, I think China believes it's responding to a variety of changes that India has been pursuing along the border. But on the ground, in terms of where China moved uh, and where it moved forces in early May, it's very clear that uh, China was seeking to sort of alter the status quo in three areas, at least the Pangong Lake area, the sort of Gorga Hot Springs area, and then the Galwan Valley, uh, which you just mentioned. In these three areas, the two sides do not share sort of the same view of where the line of actual control lies. And the line of actual control uh, sort of is a military separation line that sort of initially kind of came into being at the end of the 1962 war between China and India. And then since the 1990s has kind of served as a de facto border, but it's not a great de facto border because of course, if you don't agree on where your border lies in its entirety, then sort of episodes and frictions and uh, uh, clashes can occur like the one that we saw. And so I think it's very clear in these three areas, right? China moved forward from what India views to be the line of actual control to what China views to be the line of actual control. And not only did it move forward in these three areas, but then it stayed. And that, I think, is what really separates perhaps this episode from previous ones. So 
you do think that this conflict then was fundamentally different from the previous ones that we have seen, you know, 2017 at Doklam and before that at 2013 and 2014. You think this is fundamentally yeah. different than what we've seen previously? So I think I would say in terms of scope, scale and posture, it's different. So in terms of scope, uh, you had China moving in at least three areas along the LAC in the Western sector. There's been a subsequent Chinese movement in a fourth area known as the Depsong Plain, which is a bit to the north of the Gaowan Valley. And you have really large numbers of troops involved, somewhere between 25 and 30,000 troops now on each side have been deployed, not necessarily right up to the LAC, but clearly supporting those uh, troops that are on the LAC itself. And then in terms of the posture, right, China's not just deployed sort of frontier or border defense regiments, but actually actual main force units with supporting armor, artillery, sort of anti-aircraft uh, units and so forth. And so in the 2013 and 2014 incidents, they were relatively small in terms of the number of troops. The scope was quite limited to just one area where the LAC differed and the posture of the troops was a bit less sort of fully armed than they are today, right? And so that's a real difference. In 2017, that incident involved an area at the tri-junction with Bhutan, but I would say it is also quite different from what is happening today because it was sort of isolated to one area on the border, didn't involve nearly as many troops as we're seeing today. So we know that India and China have had a set of confidence building measures or CBMs in place started in 1996 and several times after that were updated, built out to try to prevent a conflict from occurring along the LAC. And it seems to me that maybe these CBMs are not necessarily good enough, but I'm curious what your view is. Do the two sides just simply need to update these CBMs? Do they need to be expanded? Are they still useful? Or do you think the two countries have to find some other way to manage their border dispute? I think clearly Sort of one big takeaway is that the CBMs put in place in the 1990s are no longer necessarily well suited to the situation that currently exists on the border. And so just by way of background, right, the CBMs from the 1990s were put in place after a really significant kind of crisis occurred in the mid-1980s in an area called Sundarongchu. This is actually in the eastern sector of the dispute that I mentioned, not in the western sector that we're focusing on today. And this involved an area where, again, each side believed the territory was on their side of the line of actual control. And India in the early 1980s began to move into this area on a seasonal basis. One year, China decided to get there first. And then you had, I think, up to 50 or 60,000 troops sort of in and around this area. It was very dangerous um, and thankfully didn't escalate in the way that the most recent clash did. And that then set in motion uh, efforts to basically try to uh, separate forces along the border and prevent a recurrence of that kind of clash, which that then led to the agreements in 93 and 96. But one crucial difference between sort of the early 90s and today is that neither side had great infrastructure leading up to what it used to be the line of actual control, which means that neither side could, in most areas, not deploy uh, large numbers of troops quickly or rapidly or to areas that would bring them into close proximity with troops from the other side. So the Sundarung true area, the geography lent itself to that in the 80s, but that didn't represent the situation across the entire front of the border. And now both sides, starting with China first and then subsequently India, have been able to dramatically increase their sort of ability to patrol the line of actual control, which sort of means that the agreements need to be updated to take into account what is basically a new reality. 
So my view is that you know, confidence building measures can certainly work, but one can't necessarily rely on an old agreement to sort of bring stability or to manage confidence in a new situation. So the situation has changed and the two countries need to find a better way uh, to deal with it. I think the best way, of course, would be to, to actually agree upon where the line of actual control lies and then use that as the basis for determining what kinds of troops each side can deploy up to that area. So long as there are these you know, 20 or so areas where perception of the line of actual control differs, you're going to see jostling and efforts to patrol into those areas. And as we saw most recently by China, of course, to uh, try to permanently occupy them or at least to hold them for a period of time while uh, bargaining uh, with India. And so I think I'll leave it there, but I don't want to throw the agreements out entirely. They weren't necessarily a sort of flawed from the beginning, but you know, this is 25, 28 years later, right? It's just time to, to rethink what the situation is on the border, what the main challenges are. I think we now know what the main challenges are based upon the events that led to the clash, and then think about what agreements could be put in place to prevent that in the future. You've written, Taylor, in the past about how China has negotiated with many of its neighbors to settle its border disputes along the land border. And of course, we really have not seen any progress or political will on the side of India or China to try and resolve this border disputes. What is different about this border disputes than the other borders? Why is this not a priority for China and India? That's a terrific question, Bonnie, and I'm going to have to engage in some history uh, because there were efforts in the past to try to negotiate and settle this boundary that go back uh, really to the late 1950s and the early 1960s uh, when the dispute really began to sharpen and intensify between China and India. And in April of 1960, then Premier of China, Zhou Enlai, traveled to New Delhi for, I believe, six days and proposed to Nehru a so-called package deal whereby the two countries would sort of swap claims in the east and the west. And so India would keep the eastern sector, China would keep the western sector. And it was, you know, uh, not a bad way to sort of delineate one's border based upon sort of facts on the ground. That agreement was very hard, I think, for Nehru to accept at the time. It was a tremendous amount of domestic political pressure from different elements of Indian society at a time when Indian perceptions of China had really hardened with the revolt in Tibet, the flight to the Dalai Lama to India, and so forth. And so it didn't go anywhere. And in fact, at least from China's point of view, that they viewed India's rejection of this proposal as really one factor that then led them to war in 1962, basically to consolidate their position in the Western sector, which I think is what was always most important to China. Uh, the war, of course, made further compromises even more difficult. And uh, you may recall in the fighting uh, in, in the war occurred in two phases. China paused after one phase to again restart negotiations, which of course didn't go anywhere. And then that led to the sort of second phase of the war. So there has been this sort of rough parameter of a deal uh, that's on the table. It sort of resurfaced again in the late 70s and early 80s. India was well, more keen to talk at that point, but preferred to uh, negotiate each sector separately, known as a sector-by-sector sector approach versus a package deal approach. And this, I think, from an Indian point of view, had some advantages because I think they probably concluded they could pocket China's concession from 1960 in the eastern sector and then have a more robust negotiation over the western sector. China's response was it basically, if you want to negotiate each sector, then we will sort of sharpen some of our claims in each sector. And this then led to focusing on an area called Dawang in the East. And so I share all this history with you to say that there have certainly been attempts to negotiate it. 
The way in which they've tried to negotiate it has changed. The shift from a package deal to a sector-by-sector approach, I think, made negotiations more difficult. And then, of course, now you have an incident on the border where China uh, sort of is being viewed as the aggressor in which Indian soldiers were killed and about 80 were wounded as well. This is not a small-scale you know, clash. This was a really large fight. And of course, uh, Chinese died as well, though we don't know how many, as you note. And so I think the domestic sort of political opposition to any kind of deal that didn't restore what India believed to be sort of rightfully its own territory would be very difficult. And then, of course, you have China and Xi Jinping. And as he noted at the outset, right, Xi has adopted a much more strident approach to sovereignty. And so it's hard for me to see necessarily if China would be willing to negotiate either. I think they are probably slightly more uh, willing to because, again, for them, the Western sector is more important than the Eastern sector, which is what they control. And because at least she wouldn't face as much kind of domestic political opposition because of the fact that China is a one-party Leninist regime versus sort of a more robust democracy that is the case of India. And the other reasons, or sort of the second way, I realize this is a long answer to your question, but I actually think it's really important. So please indulge me for one more minute, which is to say that China did settle 12 of 14 border disputes with other uh, land neighbors, either in the 60s or in the 90s, but most of these countries were smaller. And so when China sort of proposed uh, compromise agreements to these countries, I think they were pretty willing to take them because they probably concluded they couldn't get a better deal in the future. But India is not a small country, right? And, And India, like China, has an ancient civilization. It has a very strong military. It has a really strong sense of its own identity and interests. And so that factor enables India to conclude that it can sort of more robustly negotiate with China in the ways that the smaller countries with which China was able to reach agreements were unable to do so. And I guess there's one exception here, which would be the case of Russia. And we can talk sort of more about that if you'd like. But my quick take on Russia is that China was able to conclude its border agreements basically when the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia was really eager to maintain sort of stability on its own eastern frontier. And that sort of overlapped with China's desire to bring about a settled border. We simply don't see that same kind of strategic convergence, if you will, that would create enough pressure on both China and India to bring about a settlement in the way that we saw with China and Russia. I'd like to turn to talk a little bit about the implications of this episode for Chinese foreign policy. And I know that you've argued that Chinese officials worry that moderation and restraint might be perceived by domestic elites and even possibly by other countries as weakness. And Beijing saw the need to demonstrate resolve to defend its sovereignty. But other experts, I think, are emphasizing that the in the background, against the background of the pandemic, that China is seeking to exploit the opportunity to really press its advantage, and that we're seeing this in other disputes as well. And Xi Jinping, of course, has uh, called for turning crises into opportunity. So these aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, of course. And I'm wondering how you think this episode fits in larger Chinese foreign policy and what we learn from it. That's a great question. It's actually a hard one to answer because we're looking at the same behavior and then we have different kind of assumption we might make about what we think is most important. And then we sort of reflects our effort to sort of come up with these explanations. And so, you know, I think there are probably several different factors in play. The first, as you mentioned, right, she is a much more strident approach to sovereignty. And this in general means a much less compromising stance in all of its disputes. 
We did discuss just a moment ago, China's settlement of past border and territorial disputes. And that's significant to the extent that the remaining disputes that China has today are the ones that have been hardest to settle, and also presumably the ones that China sort of cares about the most and is least willing to compromise in or over. And so uh, that sort of enhances the stridency because you have stridency in things that China thinks are really important. So that's just a baseline condition, and that's a shift from the Hu era and certainly from uh, the Jiang Zemin era when there was, I think, a much greater sense of flexibility on questions of sovereignty. I think within that context, though, you do have a China that can also be paranoid and worried and <clears throat> sort of not willing to sort of to use a Chinese term, brook any you know transgressions on its own interests. And, and so I think that then brings me to sort of the third point about the effect of the pandemic. I am not inclined to sort of view this as sort of purely opportunistic behavior for a couple of reasons. I think first and foremost, at least in the United States, there's been a laser-like focus on China throughout the pandemic. And so I'm not sure necessarily how large China might view the opportunities sort of available to it in light of all of the attention that was focused on it. Also, what seems to have happened right in the spring of 2020 is that sort of a memo went out from the Politburo Standing Committee basically telling, you know, China in all outstanding disputes to sort of create a proverbial shield wall and just take a much tougher approach in all of these sovereignty issues, right? Because what we see in India is not sort of occurring in isolation, even though I think there's some very specific factors relating to the India border that are producing it. As you've noted, right, uh, continued assertiveness in the South China Sea there, I think they're continuing more what they have done in the past, not necessarily breaking new ground and over Taiwan, all of the military actions, which again, have a strong kind of signaling quality to them. They don't seem to be necessarily, you know, changing the status quo in a material way yet regarding say Taiwan, but clearly signaling much greater kind of resolve and, and using tools they really haven't used before. And even in Japan, uh, you see some effort, right, to, to sort of increase the presence in the territorial waters around the Senkakus. And finally, of course, Hong Kong, where there really was a change to the status quo. But again, with Hong Kong, one could see this as a product of what has been happening over the last year. And perhaps the pandemic might have affected their sense that they could now go ahead with the national security law. But in some senses, they might have gone ahead anyway at this time. And so at least sort of with South China Sea, India, Hong Kong, I think one could tell a story whereby we would see increased Chinese assertiveness in each of these three areas, given China's assessment of what they would view as the challenge to their interests. But the fact that this is all happening at once sort of suggests that there's something larger at play. And it may just be that given all the criticism that China's facing for the pandemic, given you know some real challenges at home that don't necessarily get a lot of attention, the weakness in the economy, even though it grew in the last quarter, I think people see a lot of weakness. And then the really steep decline in relations with the U.S. make China much more worried about what will happen in these important sovereignty questions that she has attached a lot of importance to. And so I think you see just a much greater willingness on the behalf of China to stand up and to protect them. And so for those reasons, I'm a little less inclined to sort of view this purely as just seeing other countries distracted and sort of unwilling to respond. Because on the one hand, China, I think, has reasons to respond in these cases. And on the other hand, it hasn't necessarily been pursuing radical kind of transformations in a way that you might expect with a more opportunity kind of driven approach. There's, of course, one particular aspect to the Sino-Indian episode, and that is that there was some force that was used. Uh, there were weapons, the, the soldiers were not armed on both sides, but nevertheless, there was hand-to-hand -hand combat, and we know that there were deaths on both sides. And this raises the question of whether 
China might be more willing to use military force to advance its interests in the future. You know, some people think that Hong Kong has great implications for Taiwan, but I wonder maybe what happened along the Sino-Indian border has greater implications for Taiwan, because the real question is, you know, is China ready to use military force in order to bring about unification or in some of these other conflicts that is happening? So what's your assessment? Is this going to be something we have to worry about and watch in the future? So let me be a typical academic and say it depends. <laughs> but here's how I would think about it. I mean, clearly, on the one hand, it does signal a greater willingness to use force with respect to territory in a way that we haven't seen probably in at least three decades. And so this, as you noted at the outset, was the deadliest clash on the China-India border since the late 60s, the first deaths on the China-India border since 1975, but also the first deaths in a Chinese territorial dispute since probably the late 1980s and the clashes on the border with Vietnam, right? So for our purposes of trying to figure out what this means for China, that is the, sort of the real breaking point. So. I think in general, it certainly suggests that China's not shying away from at least creating conditions that make a clash more likely by uh, using its military forces in, in pretty significant ways. There is one, however, this is why it depends, and there is one element that one has to take into account, which is that on the China-India border, the main way in which China has always asserted its claims has been through the use of military forces, right? So the incidents in 2013 and 14 were a product of Chinese soldiers going into these areas where the LAC is disputed. And that is simply because there are not many other government assets one could use in these areas, right? Because it's an undefined border, it really is something that the military has responsibility over. And so in this way, it differs, say, from the South China Sea or the maritime areas where you can really rely upon uh, gray zone actors and activities. So you can use the maritime militia or you can use your Coast Guard sort of to assert yourself. Uh, and on, on the China-India border, you just don't really have any option other than uh, using the PLA. And so that was the really the only tool available and has always been the only tool available. So I'm, for that, a, a bit reluctant, or I would say, let's wait and see what else happens to say that because force was used here, where really this is the one tool, uh, at least on a, in a tactical sense, that, that it makes it more likely elsewhere. But it certainly is consistent with the view that China would not shy away from using it elsewhere, especially if it viewed that to be an important tool to use in that context. And so in you know, Taiwan, this has some direct relevance, even though the stakes, I think, are wildly different for China. I mean, they're much, much more important over Taiwan than they are on the border with India. But, you know, military force is a really important tool. And, and we're seeing that through all of the really un unprecedented activities that you wrote about uh, in foreign policy not long ago with respect to what China has been doing around the island in a way to intimidate it. And so that increases, right, the probability of something happening that could then escalate out of control. And this is, I think, what we saw on the border with India. Uh, China asserted itself quite forcefully with soldiers. I don't think China meant to precipitate a clash on the night of June 15th, but the posture that they created did create the conditions for that clash to occur. We could see that happening in other border disputes as well. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the Chinese military in decision-making in Xi Jinping's China? I know that's a big question that to some extent it's a black box, but do you think there's anything about this episode with India that signals that the role of the military has increased? And if so, in what ways? Is there anything we can learn from this? I'm not sure what we can learn from this about the role of the PLA in decision-making. This decision, right, to move, say in the beginning, say it was 5,000 troops in three areas along the LIC, that would have had to have been approved at the level of the Central Military Commission. It's hard to see that being something that a Western commander could take on their own. 
And if it's approved at the level of the Central Military Commission, Xi Jinping, or at least his office, would have been involved. And so it just makes me think that this is not something that was necessarily the product of a PLA kind of improvising on its own or kind of forcing a decision upon the Chinese leadership. I think this would clearly have been something that the political leadership would have been involved in making. And so for that reason, I think it makes us hard to tease out our broader lessons. But more generally, right, we've seen with the reforms really a destruction of all the sort of old vested interests in the PLA, right, with the abolishment of the four general staff departments and the creation of all these new units directly under the Central Military Commission. You really are seeing kind of a strengthening of the CMC's uh, role. And then, of course, of Xi Jinping's role. You had the development of the chairman responsibility system, which when it first came out, sort of took me by surprise. I was like, the chairman has always been involved and it's the Central Military Commission. But this is a way of saying, no, no, just in case you have any doubt, right, this really is Xi Jinping's PLA. And then finally, you see other changes that really put Xi Jinping front and center, which would be as an example, because this has received attention in the context of the border with India, the sort of the change in annual training directives to training mobilization orders. Now, basically, this is the same thing, kind of kicking off the training season. But now Xi Jinping is issuing the order in the context of an army-wide meeting on training, and it's described as mobilization and not just something a bit more pedestrian, at least in a military context. And so that all leads me to believe that Xi Jinping ultimately is in charge of the military and is overseeing and making the final decisions on ways in which military forces will be used. And the unanswered question, of course, is who are his main military advisors and what kind of advice is he getting from them? And how is the system working? And there's a lot of talk about the ways in which you know, the centralization of foreign policy decision-making under Xi does mean that he really has a lot more discretion. And so I think there are going to be a lot of unanswered questions that we really can't sort of get to, at least the open sources that you you and I are used to working with. Let me ask one final question about lessons that China will likely draw from this episode with India and uh, how it will approach India in the future. Do you think that China will see this as a victory. I understand that China has now occupied about one kilometer across the LAC, that this will at least perhaps provide a tactical advantage. I don't know whether it would be strategically important. Of course, it's always interesting to look at the lessons that uh, China draws from using coercion against other countries. So I think it's important how they see this. And if they end up pushing India closer to the United States and working together more closely with the Quad countries, as we have seen India now agree to invite Australia to the Malabar uh, exercise would be one example. But I think that there will be others, uh, steps that India will take to try and demonstrate that it has other options, that it is not alone in dealing with pressure from China. And so do you think that this is something China will react very strongly to? Will it moderate Chinese behavior or will it embolden Chinese behavior? So the larger question of sort of China's reaction going forward. Great question or question. So the lesson on the border might be that on the one hand, China may have been able to sort of assert itself and make some tactical gains that would then, you know, sort of deter what they believe to be sort of future Indian challenges. But on the other hand, the lesson is that it probably spun out of control. Because if you hadn't had the deadly clash on the evening of June 15th and the death of 20 Indians, I think the political environment in India would have been a little bit different. And you may not have seen necessarily the view that India was now sort of facing a turning point or an inflection point with its relations with China. And so when we look at 
what the current diplomacy today, their core commander talks that are trying to bring about a disengagement. India is taking a very tough line on that, but they won't accept really anything less than a restoration of the status quo ante. China has already moved troops in some ways towards uh, a restoration of the status quo ante, although there's a lot of work left to be done. Uh, China's diplomacy is in some ways trying to put sort of the, the genie uh, back in the bottle and return the relationship to the way that it was before all this happened. And so one gets a sense from these steps, right, that China does see that it overreached and overreacted and may have worsened its strategic position, even though maybe it made some sort of uh, short tactical gains. I think there's no doubt that the India-U.S. relationship will continue to improve, and it has been improving over you know the last decade really already. But I think whether or not or how China reacts to an improved Indian-U.S. relationship probably depends upon sort of the pace with which it improves going forward and sort of then how it improves. And, and here, I think India will be very cautious in the sense that on the one hand, they will see great benefit from increased security cooperation with China, but India has no interest in uh, closely aligning itself with the United States or signing on to sort of the current approach of strategic confrontation that uh, this administration appears to be rolling out. And that would then, you know, basically link India to, to the U.S. policy in China. And that would probably lead to a greater confrontation with China. So I think we'll see India sort of moving quietly to improve in, in very specific areas that relate to security. They will be careful to do so without sort of fully antagonizing China. I think China's lesson for all of this will be that if you uh, do antagonize China, such as the clash we saw in the evening of June the 15th, that uh, there there is potentially a much greater st- strategic price to pay. We've been talking to Dr. Taylor Fravel, who is the Arthur and Ruth Sloan Professor of Political Science and Director of the Security Studies Program at MIT. Thanks so much, Taylor, for joining us today. Thank you, Bonnie. It was a real pleasure. <laughs>